The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. We cannot fake it. If I could easily see when the United States is faking something, I'm sure that China can tell as well. The best, most solid strategy to try to communicate to China, for example, that they couldn't take Taiwan quickly is to develop the capabilities to deny them the ability to take it quickly. So I get this question a lot of like, how can we message to China that hitting our satellites won't impact us? Or how can we message to China they can't take Taiwan without risking a protracted war with the United States? And I always say, the first thing is that has to be true. I'm Seraphine Danani, legal fellow at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 6th, 2022. Last week, the United States and the Philippines reached an agreement to expand U.S. military operations in the Philippines to deter China's increasingly aggressive actions toward Taiwan and in the South China Sea. The news was sandwiched between Air Force General Mike Minahan predicting that U.S. confrontation with China may happen as early as 2025, and Secretary Anthony Blinken postponing his trip to China after a Chinese surveillance balloon was detected flying over the U.S. I sat down with Dr. Oriana Schuyler Mastro, Center Fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University and non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute to discuss the likelihood of military confrontation between the U.S. and China over Taiwan and whether the U.S. has exhausted all of its deterrence capabilities to stall China from invading Taiwan. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 6th. It's not too late to deter China from invading Taiwan. So I wanted to discuss U.S. and China and Taiwan relations, but before we even get into that, I wonder if I can start by asking you about the State Department's announcement today that Secretary Blinken's trip to China will be postponed from this weekend to sometime in the future after a Chinese balloon was found flying over the U.S. You know, Pentagon says that it was an intelligence gathering balloon and the PRC said, no, we're so sorry, this was a civilian airship used for meteorological research. I'm wondering if you had any thoughts on the rationale or what you think is the rationale behind this postponement and whether you think it was the right decision. 
Well, this is one of those situations uh, that's a bit awkward as a China specialist, right? Because I can basically only speculate on what happened and whether I think this is a right decision. So the first thing is, I was kind of surprised that Secretary Blinken postponed the visit, only because this is actually not a big deal. It's it's very funny how the media and everyone's talking about this balloon, like as if the Chinese haven't been spying on the United States this whole time. But more importantly, the United States, we have a lot of assets in theater that we use to spy on China. This is actually one of the number one points of contention in the South China Sea, East China Sea issue is that the United States has ships and aircraft that is collecting information on the Chinese military there. Past couple of decades, the Chinese have been complaining about that. They say it's disrespectful. They say, you know, it's it, there's a perception of threat because it's too close. Now, of course, this balloon was not sort of, quote unquote, close to the United States. It was right over our territory. So I don't mean to equate those two things. But this is not news, right, that the two sides do this. So it was surprising that it's been elevated to this level of geopolitics. And furthermore, the Biden administration puts a priority on continuing dialogue, even with those with which we disagree. And so I was surprised that the visit was postponed. I'm torn on whether it was a good idea. On one hand, it's really annoying that whenever the Chinese get upset about something, they cut off all diplomatic relations. So it might be a good idea to show the Chinese how difficult and challenging that type of strategy is by doing something similar. On the other hand, you can make the argument that it'd be best to lead with example or by example and continue dialogue even when times are hard. So I guess we have to wait and see when the visit actually happens and what the Chinese do in the meantime before we can decide whether this was the right way to go. Thank you for that. So let's dive into the conversation about China, Taiwan, the United States. And I want to begin by giving a nod to your latest research on direct military competition between the United States and China. So if I have your theory correct, your theory is that the U.S.'s relationship with China, at least militarily, is more difficult than was the U.S.'s relationship with the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And so as a result, it makes confrontation between China and the U.S., not an unlikely possibility. Uh, What's troubling is that the U.S. and China have many different flashpoints. Do you think that this issue with Taiwan is the one that's likely to be the spark that sets off this, you know, head-to-head battle, if you will, between the two great powers? So the first thing is you definitely have it right. A lot of people ask, is China and the United States, are these two countries entering into a new Cold War? And I always respond somewhat pessimistically, no, because the possibility of a hot war is very likely. There were a lot of factors that dampened the conflictive tendencies between the United States and the Soviet Union. First and foremost, uh, we had mutually assured destruction in our nuclear capabilities, which we do not have with China. Right. China has pursued a, a very reasonable nuclear posture of a minimal deterrent. They have a couple hundred nuclear weapons, and there's a possibility that they have a problem with second strike. Right, They're concerned that the United States could take out their nuclear capabilities. Most of the wars we think about, Taiwan, South China Sea, East China Sea, whether the United States and China are correct is a separate issue, but both sides are planning for and feel like they can fight only conventional wars over these issues. So that makes the threshold for conflict much lower. 
Now, I do think Taiwan is the most likely flashpoint, but that's largely because of operational geographic issues. The Chinese military has been modernizing now for 25 years. They're almost at the point where they could take Taiwan by force. That's, that's what the sense of urgency is about. This is something new, right? Ten years ago, China had the ability to impact U.S. military operations, right? They can hit our bases, they can hit our ships, but they didn't have the capability to sail ships you know, across the strait, land people engage in that type of joint operation uh, at that point. And so that's why no one was as concerned about Taiwan as they are today. But Taiwan is very close to China. You move farther out, you know, the South China Sea, which is the size of half the continental of the United States, China is not at the point yet where it can project power effectively in those areas. So that's why Taiwan is really the most likely flashpoint, because the Chinese military is assessing that they will soon have the capability to be able to take Taiwan quickly, successfully, before the United States could intervene. At this point, China does not want to fight a protracted war with the United States. It's just their assessment that they might not have to if they can take Taiwan quickly enough. And there's been a lot of buzz in the media recently over a top U.S. general predicting that a confrontation between China and Taiwan will happen as early as 2025. Do you think that's an accurate prediction or are you anticipating confrontation sooner or or perhaps even later than 2025? One thing I'd like to highlight in this discussion about whether a conflict will happen, when it will happen, is there is no deadline. Xi Jinping does not need to take Taiwan to stay in power. This is something I think he would like to do. He's been very clear that he would like to seal his legacy in this way. But I don't see him making a move on Taiwan if he is not sure that the operation is going to be successful. So from my perspective, these timelines are largely driven uh, by our assessments of the Chinese military capability. They finished a huge military reorganization a year or two ago. Now they're just exercising to make sure they have command and control and logistics all set and ready to go. We don't know how many years that will take. Uh, I had originally predicted probably by 2027 they'll be ready to go, but they did increase exercise tempo after uh, Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. So if they're exercising more frequently, it's possible that they'll be ready sooner. That's also assuming that during those exercises, everything goes according to plan. Of course, if they encounter new challenges that they have to fix and then exercise again, it might be a bit longer. My sense is that General Minahan was but had a very specific purpose in that speech. It was less to inform and more to motivate. The bottom line is in the US system, we talk a lot about the potential threat of war, but the United States is not moving fast enough and it's it's far from doing enough to reestablish deterrence in Taiwan. There is in the day-to-day no real sense of urgency. So my sense was that he was more focused on trying to get his airmen to take this threat seriously so that they do their best day-to-day as a motivating tool than he was providing his own independent assessment of the likelihood that this would happen. Is it possible by 2025? Sure. But I would have to take a look at how Chinese military capabilities are progressing uh, from now until then before I can be sure. So you mentioned deterrence and urgency, and I want to tease those out in turn. So let me start with urgency. There are many policymakers and academics who feel varying levels of urgency on the issue of Taiwan. When you present, whether you know formally at conferences or you speak to government agencies or 
you know, even informally with your colleagues in the hallways, what are their arguments for, you know, maybe let's bide our time here, let's wait it out, let's wait and see? And, and how would you respond to those arguments? I don't think it's the case that people are arguing we can bide our time. I think there is a consensus that there is a sense of urgency. My complaint is that then when there's discussion about the policies, postures, strategies that are necessary to prevent this war from happening, people are not willing to take the risks, political risks a lot of the time, career risks some of the time, uh, diplomatic risks to try to pursue a relationship that maybe then doesn't pan out uh, in order to do what we need to do to be ready. That's my primary concern. A lot of what I hear when I'm briefing, whether it's at the Pentagon or the State Department is, oh, that's really hard, or they're not going to like that, or you know, I'm not 100% sure that's going to work. And so people are unwilling to make, I think, the tough decisions that we need to make in order to reestablish deterrence. So I wrote uh, an op-ed that appeared yesterday in the Washington Post about Japan, for example. And Japan has made some monumental changes, right, with the increase in their defense spending. But people are sort of putting a check mark, like, okay, we're good. Now we're good on this whole Japan-Taiwan issue. But Japan is very clear that their defense capabilities do not extend to the defense of Taiwan. They are preparing to defend themselves if China attacks, right? So when I was in Japan two weeks ago talking to senior leaders about this, you know, they would say, you know, but aren't we making some progress? And, and they are. But my view is, if it doesn't have any impact on what a potential Chinese operation to take Taiwan is going to look like, then it does not enhance deterrence. So it is politically difficult for the Japanese to say that they could consider defending Taiwan. It is difficult for the United States to revamp its defense industrial complex so we can produce the munitions in the numbers we need. It is diplomatically sensitive to pursue basing arrangements with countries. And the recent announcement of, of the new arrangement with the Philippines is a huge plus. You know, that goes in my, my column with like AUKUS of, of really great things that, that we've accomplished in the past couple of years. But for the most part, you know, a lot of those things might not uh, work out, but we have to give everything that we have a try to prevent a conflict from happening. Because I think the saddest thing about this whole Taiwan issue is it's actually completely like we can deter China. Now, I don't know how to resolve this issue. Uh, I think, you know, I always I say often the war is inevitable, but we can deter it forever. Uh, just because I can't figure out a, a situation, some sort of agreement, in which there's never the possibility of war. But we can continue to shape the international environment so that the Chinese feel like using force uh, is not the way to go. And of course, that Taiwan feels like declaring independence is not the way to go. The issue is that we just need you know, more munitions in more places closer to Taiwan and more allies and partners willing to engage in offensive military activity with the United States in order to achieve that. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. So, Oriana, is deterrence futile at this point, or do you think the United States still has some untapped deterrence capabilities that could stall, maybe even prevent China's invasion of Taiwan? 
So there's three main types of deterrence that that we'd like to think of, right? Uh, Deterrence by cost and position, which you basically say to the other side, it would be very costly for you to do this, right? You might succeed. You might take Taiwan, but we'll impose costs on you for doing that, whether those are military costs, casualties, or economic costs. Then there's denial, which is like, we will physically prevent you from landing on the island of Taiwan, right? We can put some, you know, a wall of firepower. And so even if you have all the resolve in the world, you can't physically get your way across. Now, historically, the United States uh, military and strategic apparatus has been somewhat obsessed with cost of position. The United States is very powerful. We think just the threat of us being engaged is enough to convince a country not to do something. The problem is that a lot of those cost and position threats are not enough to deter China, given how beneficial having Taiwan would be. So if you said to Xi Jinping, like, you can take Taiwan, but you'll lose half your Navy, I think he'd be like, I can build more ships, right? So mm-hmm. it's a, it, it's hard for us to reach that sweet spot in costs. And it's also sometimes incredible because sometimes those costs can go both ways, right? Like, so with casualties, we'll inflict a lot of casualties on you. Probably that means we're fighting a major war. We have a lot of casualties inflicted on us, and we have less resolve in this issue. I don't care what people tell you about, like, you know, the United States also cares about Taiwan. That is true. But we are not willing to absorb the same amount of costs as China is over Taiwan. So for that reason, cost and position has rightfully, hopefully kind of fallen out of favor. And people now focus on this deterrence by denial. And this is where a lot of my work comes in about, listen, if we have the capabilities in the Taiwan Strait to make Xi Jinping think he cannot successfully take Taiwan quickly, he's not going to do it. Right. Now, the problem with with this is that we don't have those capabilities right now. You need a lot of munitions, a lot of mass and the ability to deliver them to this locale of the Taiwan Strait. And we have difficulties doing that right now. The third area that I have articulated that I think we need more thinking about is deterrence by resilience. So there's some issues when I say that we can't do the denial um, strategy right now. It's also because China can reach out and touch us, right? They can attack our bases. They can disable our satellites. Uh, They can threaten allies and partners to keep them out of the fight. We have these vulnerable points. It's very hard to convince China not to do these things because the operational benefits are so high, right? They disrupt our satellites. We can no longer project power. They win the war, right? We don't have early warning. They win the war. Uh, we can't use our one air base in the vicinity of Taiwan at Kadena, they win the war. So the benefits are so high that it becomes very difficult to come up with a deterrent posture. So what I recommend is we think instead about convincing China that yes, you you can attack these assets, right? So it's not that we can defend them. It's not like, oh, you can try to attack our base, we can defend it. We cannot defend it. There's always a point in which missiles come through. But that we tell them that does not affect our operations. Yes, you can disable our satellites, but we still can project power. Yes, you can take out Kadena, but we'll still be able to achieve air superiority. So a lot of that is based on having more redundancy and capabilities that we have. You know, in the satellite example, you can think about having multiple constellations that do the same thing. You can think about having arrangements or agreements with commercial uh, sector or other countries' satellites uh, if need be, so that there's not this sort of one point weakest link in the whole picture. And we can't just make it up, right? Like we can't fake it. We we have these robust operations and we can defend ourselves. I think China will look at us and say, yeah, well, let's try it. We have to actually build this up and 
you know, walk the walk, if you will? I think there's a debate on that. My position is, yes, we cannot, we cannot fake it. If I could easily see when the United States is faking something, I'm sure that China can tell as well. The best, most solid strategy to try to communicate to China, for example, that they couldn't take Taiwan quickly is to develop the capabilities to deny them the ability to take it quickly. So I get this question a lot of like, how can we message to China that hitting our satellites won't impact us? Or how can we message to China they can't take Taiwan without risking a protracted war with the United States? And I always say, the first thing is that has to be true, right? And then the next thing is we have to convince China of it. But I find it very, it's not enough for it to be true, right? You also then have to signal, you also have to credibly communicate. Uh, But if it's not true, I find that's a very hard uh, deck to be dealt. And you also mentioned capabilities in Taiwan Strait and deterrence by resilience. I'm wondering, how can the United States practically do this in so far as it's trying to persuade other Southeast Asian countries like the Philippines to open its borders to U.S. military presence when these countries have very vocally said that they'd much rather stay neutral and they really don't want to pick a side. So there is no staying neutral because staying neutral is what China wants. So staying neutral is picking a side. Those countries are then picking China's side. So that's sort of the the first point. The second point is, as much as that sounds critical of those countries, it's also completely understandable that they choose neutrality. They choose China's side. First and foremost, because what China is asking of countries is a lot less than what the United States is, right? The United States is asking countries to potentially support our operations, even in some scenarios with some partners fight with us, risk the lives of their own citizens, risk their own futures. China is asking countries just to do nothing. So that is an easier diplomatic task than the one that the United States faces. So I think part of that question then becomes like, why would they go inside with the United States? And the argument I make is because that's the best bet for avoiding war overall. Maybe you think in a war, if the war actually breaks out, you're better off neutral. But if you stay neutral, then there's more likely the possibility that war is going to break out. If China felt like it would have to fight the United States and all of its allies and partners, you know, Europe, for example, uh, NATO, if it attacked Taiwan, it would not attack Taiwan. The issue is right now, that's that's not what the situation is, right? They don't think that all the United States allies and partners are going to engage in offensive operations against them if they start a war across the Taiwan Strait. So yes, neutrality makes sense, but that also in wartime, but it it makes war more likely in peacetime. Interesting. And for many of us, myself included, who don't have a military background, could you explain what the U.S.'s military expansion in the Philippines means? Like, both what's the strategy behind the expansion? You spoke on this briefly, but also the kind of influence this affords the United States in this China-Taiwan conflict. So this is my my personal view, taking a look at why it would be useful to have military bases in the Philippines, and especially the northern Philippines. In the Taiwan Strait type of contingencies, the United States has a number of challenges that it faces. One, I've sort of mentioned before, bringing massive firepower to the Taiwan Strait. And part of that is also geographic, right? Range and location. The northern Philippines is you know, one of the closest points to the Taiwan Strait. So having access to bases in those locations could facilitate 
the United States being able to bring firepower to the Taiwan Strait in a timely manner. It's also very useful, as I mentioned before, if we rely too much on one location, two locations like Kadena just for air power, the more bases that we have from which we can operate, the less attractive it becomes for the Chinese to attack one or two of those bases. And so it's also beneficial for a sort of a dispersal, redundance, deterrence by resilience type of argument for the United States to expand its military presence in the Philippines. Let's talk about sanctions, Dr. Mastro. I noticed that you didn't talk about sanctions as being a part of this deterrence package, if you will. And I'm wondering if they do have a place. Like, do you think that Xi Jinping is looking at the robust sanctions that the international community deployed against Russia and thinking, yeah, this might not be a good time to attack Taiwan. So when you first started out with your question, I was about to say yes, but then you brought in the Russia example so that I wanted to say no. I mean, Xi Jinping 100% thinks about sanctions. Uh, Economic costs uh, could also be a great deterrent. But to the previous point about military involvement, countries are not at the stage where they're willing to consider the degree of sanctions that would be necessary to deter China. So if U.S. allies and partners were to cut off all trade with China, if they attack Taiwan, that cost would be way too high and China would not do it. But what China is expecting is more like three to five years of limited sanctions. And Xi Jinping has been trying to sanctions-proof their economy, right, by having the critical industries in which they're more self-reliant, having overland pipelines so they don't have to rely just on waterways to get uh, critical materials like oil where the United States can blockade them. Uh, So the view right now is, of course, the United States is going to try to lead some U.S. sanctions against them, but they're not going to be extensive. Now, you describe the sanctions against Russia as robust. I guess they were more than people expected. But even against Russia, with which, you know, most countries do not have the strongest trade relations with, uh, countries weren't willing to go all the way. Right. We weren't seizing. We're not seizing Russian you know, assets in the United States. We didn't. You know, countries haven't ceased all trade uh, with Russia. And of course, they also didn't do it right away. Right. It's more of a phasing effect. So I think China looks at that and says, OK, you know, countries were willing to be harsh on Russia because they don't rely on Russia. But when you ask uh, most governments in the region, like, OK, you sanction Russia over Ukraine. Are you going to sanction China if they attack Taiwan? You know, the answer is no. Because the, their economy relies so heavily on China. And so the bottom line is, yes, theoretically, sanctions would have a huge impact. But I think maybe in some ways we're even farther from getting to where we need to be on the coordination of those in peacetime to enhance deterrence than we are with the military arm. And I also think you need buy-in from the private sector, right, in order to have a successful sanctions regime. Do you have any thoughts on how the private sector feels about sanctioning China? Well, I'm not sure you really need buy-in from the private sector, right? Like a law is a law. If the U.S. government says you can no longer do this, then you know companies that want to do business with the United States can no longer engage in those activities. A lot of the U.S.-led sanctions are less that we can physically prevent companies from doing things, but it's more the punishments associated with it. And they lose more by ignoring U.S. 
desires, given the dominance of the dollar, the U.S. dominance of the financial system, and and its own large market, then they would continue to trade with China. That's not the case for all countries, but that's the case with most. So I'm not sure how much private sector buy-in you really have to to get uh, with this. But of course, the bottom line is, I think people who are primarily focused on prosperity uh, and investment and financial growth uh, would like to avoid a war at all costs. Uh, I recently asked an economist friend of mine to recommend me some articles about economic power, like how what economists say about using you know, trade and stuff to get ahead. Because I said, listen, I read a lot of stuff by political scientists like me, but I'm not sure how much they really know what they're <laughs> talking about. And he said, well, I can't think of anything because economists, like we think about prosperity and wealth. We don't think about power and dominance in that way. And, and so I thought, oh, that's interesting. I guess you're right. Probably most people in the private sector are thinking primarily about making money. They're not thinking about like, how can I make sure that, you know, U.S. dominance remains in the world type of thing. So we have different incentives at play. Interesting. I did see your conversation in Japan and you mentioned your conversation with bankers. I felt like that was really interesting and something our listeners are not used to hearing. Well, I'll say that recently, in the past year or so, um, I have been uh, also spending a lot of time doing discussions, consulting with people in the private sector, mainly, you know, portfolio managers, hedge fund managers, uh, people of that ilk. And it's been really enlightening to me because I spend most of my time, you know, in windowless rooms in, in basements. So besides the views are much better and the food is much better, uh, the other thing that really struck me was their viewpoint about what drives international politics, right? On this Taiwan issue, most people I talked to were like, well, you know, if if the semiconductor industry moved out of Taiwan, then no one would want Taiwan anymore. And I was like, that's not what this is about. Like China doesn't want Taiwan because of the semiconductors. We don't want to defend Taiwan because of the semiconductors. I mean, now that that's an additional situation, but that's not the primary driver. What's also interesting is a difference in timelines. So I remember once an investor asked me, you know, is war possible in the foreseeable future? And I said, absolutely. And he responded, in the next three months? And I was like, oh, no, you know, for a defense planner, you know, the the near term is like three to five years, right? I think, so that's one thing when I'm going and I'm talking to people and I'm like, we got to get it together. You know, this could happen in 2027. They're like, that is so far from now. But I guess what they don't realize is how long it takes from sort of initial decision to implementation, you know, to putting things out in the field. In the military realm, things take so long. For them, they're like, oh, I have trillions of dollars in China, and then I can, you know, it's not great, but I can pull it out almost instantaneously. So we have different conceptions about what drives the motivations of people. We have different conceptions of timelines that I found quite fascinating during those engagements. Dr. Oriana Schuyler Mastro, I'm afraid our time is limited, but thank you for joining us and we hope to have you back on soon. Yeah, thank you for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com as well. 
The podcast is edited by Jen Pachahal, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osmond of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.